I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 9, which will be our text for this morning. And let's pray as we look to God's Word. Father, we thank you for time gathering with your people to remind our hearts and to remind one another to not be busy like Bethlehem but to prepare room for you. As we hear in the call of your messenger, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the paths for the King. We pray that you would do that in our hearts through your word this morning. You would fill us with joy and peace and hope in believing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 9, verse 1, and we'll read through verse 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, You have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Thanks be to God. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. In the time of Christmas, which is it blowing any of your minds? That's that's just two weeks away. I'm not ready for that. Um, Life feels already so busy. And then you just toss on a few more holiday activities, festivities, anxieties. But it's fun. Like There is so much joy around the Christmas time. And we sing these carols, joy to the world. There's so much joy. Except for when there isn't. And there are times in which Christmas, instead of being a time of joy, is a time of pain. The first Christmas without a loved one can make that wound throb. Christmas in the midst of financial or or family strains 
can be really hard. Maybe just the darkness of this present moment as Scott preached about last week, the fact that we are living as strangers and exiles in a world where we feel very alien. And so it makes it hard for you to feel like jingling any bells. A little hard to feel jolly? Maybe you feel like those described in in the verse immediately preceding our passage where it says, And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. We all have times when our joy doesn't seem to be working. When it seems to have dried up. And this is where hope comes in. Tough times tempt us to turn inward. Inward to our own resources, maybe the lack thereof. Inward in judgment, saying, why am I struggling like this? Or maybe judgment of God, saying, God, why am I struggling like this? Inward in self-reproach or inward in self-pity. But hope, hope turns us outward. It points us away from ourselves. It points us to a Savior. When all we can see is gloom, when all we can see is anguish, that's all we feel, hope points us to Jesus and says with our passage, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. So if you are struggling for joy this holiday season, you are exactly at exactly the right place to hear God's message of hope spoken through our passage. Right here in verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. We have a passage this morning that celebrates the hope of Christmas. The hope of Emmanuel, the hope of God with us. And so we celebrate Christmas in this passage because, and these are the the, the four points we'll cover. One, our darkness does not get the last word. Two, we'll see our sin does not get the last word. Three, our enemies do not get the last word. And finally, we'll see that Jesus gets the last word. So first, our darkness does not get the last word. Look at verses 1 and 2. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. I've danced close enough to the edge, the edge of despair. I know. I know what it feels like. And for some of you, all you can see right now is the gloom. And it seems so dark. And it did in Isaiah's day. Flip back two chapters. Chapter 7, verse 1 and 2 says, this is the likely context of this prophecy in our passage. 
Chapter 7, verse 1 and 2. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Judah was standing, but barely. Maybe like some of you. She was threatened by the allied forces of Israel to the north and Syria. Two strong kings, ambitious kings. Pekah, king of Israel, Remaliah, the, uh, or Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel. And so these two kings come together. It's likely they are forming a compact to try to form a Palestinian resistance to the, the threatening force of Assyria further to the north. And they want to get Judah in on this. Judah's not playing along. And so they are going to come in, they're going to conquer, and they're going to impose, set up a puppet king. And it's likely that Judah had already suffered the devastating defeats described in Second Chronicles 28. You don't need to flip there, but if you want to mark that in your notes. Second Chronicles chapter 28. Verse 6 and 7 says, Pekah the son of Remaliah killed 120,000 from Judah in one day, all of them men of valor, because they had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. And Zikri, a man, mighty man of Ephraim, killed Maasai, the king's son, and Azrikam, the commander of the palace, and Elkanah, the next in authority to the king. So in summary, their heroes were being slaughtered. Their relatives were being carted off to the north by the hundreds of thousands. Things were not going well. It was dark. And in case you missed it from our passage or for what you know about Isaiah, this was not a high point spiritually for Judah either. Even under the godly leadership of Uzziah, And Jotham, the people had followed corrupt, idolatrous practices. You can read more about the way that idolatry worked its way out and even their interaction with one another through Isaiah's contemporary Micah. But they they were corrupt, they were idolatrous, and now sin had grown grotesque. We read in 2 Chronicles 28 that Ahaz was setting up images for the Baals chasing every false god and even burning his sons in human sacrifice. Now you you hope, you hope the cataclysmic effects, the events of, of war and famine and siege and death, that this might be enough to shock a people into repentance. But no. The sinful heart knows that it needs hope But it is dead set against finding that hope in God. So as Isaiah looks around at the end of chapter 8, he does not see people turning to Yahweh. He sees them turning to mediums and necromancers. He sees them giving themselves up to doom scrolling 
conspiracy theories and blasphemy. Look at chapter 8, verse 21 and 22. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will become be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. This is language that sounds apocalyptic. It sounds like what you hit in Revelation. The language as Isaiah finishes chapter 8 feels so final. And we're tempted to think the darkness has gotten the last word. And then we get to our passage. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Friends, we don't know how long the night will last, but nights don't last forever. You might be going through a season of financial strain. It will not last forever. You might be struggling with some family tension, struggles in parenting, or struggles in your broader family. It will not last forever. Work stresses, they will not last forever. Psalm 30 reminds us, weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Dawn will break. Dawn will break. But we might have to wait. Isaiah had to wait. Responding to the despair all around him in, in 8.17, he says... As his confession, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. So we see from Isaiah that the thing that enables waiting is hope. Hope is critical. You can get by when you have a little less hope, but you cannot get by when you are hopeless. You just quit. When you're hopeless, you give up. And I say that knowing that some of you have a really strong duty impulse like me. So like we say, it doesn't matter how I feel, I'm just going to do the next right thing. Get that from Frozen, but Frozen stole it from someplace. Um, It's good advice. Even a broken clock gets things right every once in a while. Doing the next right thing is great. But many of you have discovered that duty is kind of like after you've, you're driving and you hit the E on your gas tank and you're like, I still got, I still got a gallon. Um, I can go another 30 miles. Uh, yeah, duty can get you a little further, but not much. You're going to quit. You're going to run out of gas. We need hope as the fuel in our tank. Hope is the fuel of our faith. So what is hope? Well, if you scan the Scriptures, you'll find that many times it overlaps with faith. Sometimes we have an expression like, put your hope in God that's synonymous with faith. Sometimes faith seems to complete hope. So faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And other times, faith seems like this expansive thing bigger than hope. Like in First Peter, um, 
it's a celebration of all that God has stored up for us and all that He is doing in us. I, I think faith and hope are, are, are Siamese twins and we shouldn't try to rip them apart. Where faith grips us here, hope grips, grips us here. Hope is that thing that captures our hearts and captivates our imaginations. Hope, as it's used throughout the Bible, looks to the thing outside of us that's going to rescue us and says it's going to be alright. Hope anchors us to future joy. And this is what the people in Isaiah's day needed Because they weren't seeing the present joy. No, sometimes hope is misplaced. In the Psalms we hear a war horse is a false hope for salvation. In Isaiah we see Egypt and the other nations proving to be really lousy hopes. Even here in our chapter, you see the vain hopes of the empty optimism of the people of Israel just a little later. You can note verse 9, 10, 11. The people of Israel are saying, the bricks have fallen for us. The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. They're feeling, they're feeling positive. It's not going to work out for them because they're fighting the Lord. They have made themselves God's enemies. So, so not every hope is equally valid, but what's clear is that people are looking to find hope somewhere. We want something to assure us that everything's going to be alright. The reason we have all these counterfeits and substitutes is because it is so critical to have hope. And that is precisely why here in our passage God gives this to His people. He looks to people who can't see past the gloom of their present circumstances. And He says, it will not last. The darkness does not get the last word. Moving on to the second point, our sin does not get the last word. Look at verse 1. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and then the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Isaiah is a prophet who largely lives and focuses in Judah. He was talking about his ministry to the people of Judah. Suddenly we have the scene shift. And we're talking about the lands of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. And, and, and that, that is even in the context of we have uh, coming off of chapter 8 this picture of both the lands of Israel and the land of Judah united in their refusal to find their hope in God. And this is actually indicated in chapter 8 at the point where he says that he will become a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. 
So he says, this is, this is a big problem. Our passage gives us this powerful word of hope for those in darkness, gloom, and anguish. But it'd be easy to miss that it was spoken to people who were in the darkness because they chose the darkness. If you scan chapter 8, you see that the reason they're in the darkness, in distress, in anguish, is because of judgment. They're homeless and hungry and bitter because of their sin. These were people who had looked everywhere for hope except for the Lord. They'd looked to idols. They'd looked to the nations. They even looked to the dead. Chapter 8, verse 19. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. So these are people in darkness, but the people in darkness are people not just under darkness, but people who have participated in the darkness. People who in a sense have preferred the darkness. And why would we prefer the darkness? Well, John 3 says we prefer the darkness because our deeds are evil. We don't come to the light lest our deeds be exposed. Darkness promises us safety. It promises us safety, but it delivers shame, right? Our sin promises us satisfaction, but it never delivers. And this is what Israel was learning. All their self-reliance, all their attempts to negotiate life on their terms had failed them. Already Zebulun and Naphtali had been overrun. This is perhaps described uh, describing the Assyrian attack in 2 Kings 15.29, if you want to jot that down, in which uh, Tiglath-Pelesar, uh, an Assyrian king, comes in and he carries off uh, the land of Naphtali. And, and the rest of Israel would follow likely within a decade. And Judah was under the same indictment. It is tempting at this point seeing so much sin, so much rejection of Yahweh to give up hope. Some of you have sin. Some of you have sin that has caused you to give up hope. You're ashamed of, of where you are. You're ashamed of what you've become. The relationships that you've shattered with your lies the trust you've destroyed through your anger, the way lust has enslaved you. And you know better. We know better, right? And, and we wouldn't say this, we don't say these sort of things, but deep down we're afraid that our sin has taken us too far. We fear that we're beyond hope. And God wants you to know this morning as we approach Christmas that your sin does not get the last word. That's what we see here in our passage. You are never past the reach of His grace. 
In fact, what we find in our passage is that when God wants to highlight the reach of His extraordinary grace, He goes to the places and the peoples we would not expect. Places like Zebulun and Naphtali. He didn't choose Jerusalem here. He didn't choose Judah. He chooses the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali, these far-off northern tribes. They weren't particularly special. You don't see them doing a lot throughout the Scriptures. They are exposed to the attacks of the nations. And they're the first ones to get carried off. And it's these, these lands of Galilee, as will become familiar in Jesus' ministry, where God chooses to display His mercy. Remember, these are the bad guys. Isaiah is speaking to Judah, and these are the guys that just joined to attack them. But it's to these that God says, no, their sin also does not get the last word. Judah, your sin does not get the last word. Brothers and sisters here at Rockport, your sin does not get the last word. Because God has more in store for us. Three, our enemies do not get the last word. We'll see this in verses 3 and 5. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. We see image after image stacked up here to show one thing. God's people win. Our enemies do not get the last word. And this is an important part of our hope because our eyes tell us otherwise. And the eyes of the Jewish eyes in Isaiah's day, they also would have been telling them otherwise for a while. These prophetic passages, they're using a past tense. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. And it's using the past tense to show the certainty of God's promise. But they are a long way off. Things could get would get worse before they got better. Israel would be decimated by Assyria, carried off. Judah would be exiled to Babylon. Eventually they would return, but only a fraction of them, a remnant. Chapter 10, verse 22. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. So why does God give this promise to this people? You have multiplied the nation? You've increased its joy? Why does God give promises of victory and liberation and peace only to make us wait a very long time? That's a complex question. 
maybe part of the problem is we're asking the wrong question. Maybe the question that explains a passage like ours is if God had a plan that required His people to wait a very long time, what might He give to equip them? He would do what He does right here. He would read us the ending. The ending of the story. Now, I know this is, in a lot of people's mind, something you're not supposed to do. You're not supposed to read the ending of the story. I don't know, I haven't had the conversation with Terry Stoner, but as an author, she probably wants people to go through her story and experience it as she has laid it out as the author. But when I was young, I empathized too much with the characters and I couldn't get through some books. Like The Tale of Two Cities, which is just hard anyway. Uh, Although we recently read it again, it's wonderful, you should read it. But you've got a great start, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. You've got a great ending, you'll have to read it. In the middle, it's just a bunch of ladies knitting and people killing people. Um, It's a hard go. And so, I know you're not supposed to jump to the end of the book, but I would. I would jump to the end of the book and I would read the end of the book and that helped me get through the story. And God has done the same thing for us here. He has given us the ending. He gave the ending to the people of Israel. He says, I'm going to bring this to pass. You will have joy. You will have joy like those who are the winners, who divide the spoil. You will have joy because I'm going to remove the yoke of your burden and the staff. I'm going to remove your enemy. They're not going to win. And that's an important reminder for some of you. But God doesn't just reassure us that He'll make the ending work out. He makes it clear that He's control in control of the whole story. And, and you see that, that... And this is here where it gets complex because prophecy like we have here often has a near and a far fulfillment. So as the example you may have heard, if you're driving up and approaching the Rocky Mountains or, or some set of mountains and you say, oh look, the mountains, you might be talking about a nearer set of mountains that you can see, but you might be referring to the even taller ones that are behind them. And sometimes in the, in the prophecies we encounter, we have immediate um, fulfillments and then we have further fulfillments. Clearly, we are left waiting for something, a fuller fulfillment in this passage. But the near fulfillment, when he says the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulders, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken on the day of Midian, is Assyria. You you see that because he uses exactly the same language in chapter 10, verse 24 through 27. Languages. He says, rod, staff, burden, Yoke, Midian, in both passages. See, God has said, I'm using Assyria right now to bring judgment. Judah, I'm using Assyria to bring judgment on Israel who has attacked you. And then He's going to use somebody else to bring judgment on Assyria. Assyria is doing these things. It's serving as God's tool, but it doesn't think so. It's not doing it out of piety. 
It's doing it out of pride. It likes destroying things. And God says, God gives His people a reassurance. I'm going to take care of things. What you see going on right now with Assyria, I'm going to take care of them too. I'm in control. And, and, and just noting that this, this mention of Midian, that, that's important because Midian was an example where there was darkness, they were up against enemies that seemed way beyond them, just like the Assyrians. In, in dealing with the Assyrians and in dealing with the Midianites before, in both cases, God reminds us that the size of the enemy is not significant. It doesn't matter. Thinking back to the time when God defeated the Midianites, this is the story of Gideon. And when he defeated the Midianites, they are described, it says the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance and their camels were without number. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of warriors. And God takes care of them. And God takes care of the Assyrians as well. And God will take care of your enemies in His time. He's got the story covered. Our enemies do not get the last word. Finally, we see that Jesus gets the last word. Isaiah 9, look at verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will do this. What we find in these last two verses is that the reason the darkness doesn't get the last word. The reason your sin doesn't get the last word. The reason your enemies don't get the last word is because somebody else gets the last word. Jesus is the one who has that right. Jesus gets the last word. One of the glorious reminders of Christmas is that when hope comes to us, it doesn't come to us as a nebulous optimism. A holly, jolly, frothy positivism. It's not positive energy. It's not good vibes. Hope comes in a person. Amen. Hope comes in a person who has everything he needs in order to accomplish the promises of this passage. He has the authority. He has the authority. It says the government will be on his shoulders and his government's going to extend endlessly. He has the power for, he's, it says he is mighty God. It says he has the wisdom to work out this plan because he's described as the wonderful counselor. It doesn't say he's, he's a good therapist. It says he's the wonderful counselor. 
A counselor of war. A counselor who would give plans to a king. A counselor who's wise. And God's wisdom is beyond searching out. Who has been His counselor? There's nobody that's His counselor. He's at the top. As the everlasting Father, He has unending compassion for us. Because that's what fathers do and that's what you see in Isaiah. And as the Prince of Peace, His reign will make wars cease from shore to shore. Far as the curse is found and establish righteousness and justice from this time forth and forevermore. Of course, we have the the privilege, the benefit of reading this prophecy on this side of Jesus' life and ministry. We know He is the Christ, the Messiah, the One who fulfills these verses. We have heard the angel. The angels echo this passage when they announce to the shepherds, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. We we see in Jesus' Galilean ministry Him fulfilling the promises to give special grace to Zebulun and Naphtali. For Isaiah and the other prophets, these things were more of a glorious mystery. And they waited. But they waited in hope because God had assured them that He would get the last word. They could have confidence in the ending of the story. They could have confidence in the details of the story. And while we have the privilege of seeing more than they did, we also join them in their hope. Because although Jesus has come already, Already He has come to establish righteousness. Already He has come to multiply the nations as He gathers into His people, not only the people of Israel, but also people from every tribe and tongue and language, people like you and like me. Already Jesus has started the work. Yet with the prophets, and here at Christmas time, we still wait. We still wait for Him to bring this to completion where He will take every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood and burn it in the fire. He will end all wars. He will establish His reign and it will be beautiful. But until then, we wait. Until then, we wait. But we wait in hope. Because Jesus has come. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the reminders of hope this morning. And we ask that You would fill us with hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.